the arrows were formed of two distinct pieces of wood spliced together and were shod with flint. They were feathered in the usual way. All the articles manufactured by these natives were neatly done and evinced considerable skill in the use of their few and simple tools. After resting half an hour, the two friends rose to depart, and again the old Indian manifested much anxiety to prevail on them to remain. But resisting all his entreaties, they mounted their horses and rode away, carrying with them the good wishes of the community by the courtesy of their manners and a somewhat liberal distribution of tobacco at parting. The country through which they passed became wilder at every step, for each hour brought them visibly nearer the mountain range, and towards nightfall they entered one of the smaller passes or ravines that divided the lower range of hills at which they first arrived. Here a rugged precipice, from which projected pendant rocks and scrubby trees, rose abruptly on the right of the road, and a dense thicket of underwood mingled with huge masses of fallen rock lay on their left. We use the word road advisedly, for the broad highway of the flowering plains over which the horsemen had just passed narrowed at this spot as it entered the ravine, and was a pretty well-defined path, over which parties of diggers and wandering Indians occasionally passed. Does not this wild spot remind you of the nursery tales we used to read, said Ned, as they entered the somewhat gloomy defile, which used to begin once upon a time? Ned, is that a grizzly? Both riders drew up abruptly and grasped their rifles. "'I hear nothing,' whispered Ned. "'It must have been imagination,' said Tom, throwing his rifle carelessly over his left arm, as they again advanced. The gloom of the locality, which was deepened by the rapidly gathering shades of night, quieted their spirits and induced them to ride on in silence. About fifty yards further on, the rustling in the bushes was again heard, and both travelers pulled up and listened intently. "'Pshaw!' cried Ned at last, urging his horse forward and throwing his piece on his shoulder. "'We are starting at the rustling of the night wind. "'Come, come, Tom, don't let us indulge superstitious feelings.' At that moment there was a crash in the bushes on both sides of them, and their horses reared wildly as four men rushed upon them. Before their steeds became manageable, they were each seized by a leg and hurled from their saddles. In the fall their rifles were thrown out of their grasp into the bushes, but this mattered little, for in a close struggle pistols are better weapons. Seizing their revolvers, Ned and Tom instantly sprang up and fired at their assailants, but without effect, both being so much shaken by their fall. The robbers returned the fire also without effect. In the scuffle Ned was separated from his friend and only knew that he maintained the fight manfully from the occasional shots that were fired near him. His whole attention, however, had to be concentrated on the two stalwart ruffians with whom he was engaged. Five or six shots were fired at a few yards' distance, quick as lightning, yet, strange to say, all missed. Then the taller of the two opposed to Ned hurled his revolver full in his face and rushed at him. The pistol struck Ned on the chest and almost felled him, but he retained his position and met the highwayman with a well-directed blow of his fist right between the eyes. Both went down under the impetus of the rush, and the second robber immediately sprang upon Ned and seized him by the throat. But he little knew the strength of the man with whom he had to deal. Our hero caught him in the iron grasp of his right hand, while with his left he hurled aside the almost inanimate form of his first assailant. Then, 
Throwing the other on his back, he placed his knee on his chest and drew his bowie knife. Even in the terrible passion of mortal combat, Ned shuddered at the thought of slaying a helpless opponent. He threw the knife aside and struck the man violently with his fist on the forehead, and then sprang up to rescue Tom, who, although he had succeeded at the outset in felling one of the robbers with the butt of his pistol, was still engaged in doubtful strife with a man of great size and power. When Ned came up, the two were down on their knees, each grasping the other's wrist in order to prevent their bowie knives from being used. Their struggles were terrible, for each knew that the first who freed his right hand would instantly take the other's life. Ned settled the matter, however, by again using his fist, which he applied so promptly to the back of the robber's neck that he dropped as if he had been shot. "'Thank you. God bless you, Ned,' gasped Tom as soon as he recovered breath. "'You have saved my life, for certainly I could not have held out a minute longer.' "'The villain has all but broken my right arm.' "'Never mind,' cried Ned, stooping down and turning the stunned robber over on his face. "'Give me a hand, boy. We must not let the fellows recover and find themselves free to begin the work over again. Take that fellow's neckcloth and tie his hands behind his back.' Tom obeyed at once, and in a few minutes the four highwaymen were bound hand and foot and laid at the side of the road. Now, said Ned, we must push on to the nearest settlement, hot haste, and bring a party out to escort. Hello? Tom, are you wounded? Not badly. A mere cut on the head. Why, your face is all covered with blood. It's only in consequence of my wiping it with a bloody handkerchief, then. But you can examine and satisfy yourself. The wound is but slight, I see, rejoined Ned after a brief manipulation of Tom's skull. "'Now, then, let us away. "'We'll have to catch our horses first, and that won't be an easy matter.' "'Tom was right. "'It cost them half an hour to secure them and recover their rifles and other arms, "'which had been scattered over the field of battle. "'On returning to the spot where the robbers lay, "'they found them all partially recovered and struggling violently to free themselves. Three of them failed even to slacken their bonds, but the fourth, the powerful man who had nearly overcome Tom Collins, had well-nigh freed his hands when his captors came up. "'Lie quiet,' said Ned in a low tone, "'if you don't want the butt of my rifle on your skull.' The man lay down instantly. "'Tom, go and cut a stake six feet long, and I'll watch these fellows till you come back.' The stake was soon brought and lashed to the robber's back in such a manner that he was rendered utterly powerless. The others were secured in a similar manner, and then the two travelers rode forward at a gallop. For nearly an hour they continued to advance without speaking or drawing rein. At the end of that time, while sweeping round the jutting base of a precipitous rock, they almost ran into a band of horsemen who were trotting briskly towards them. Both parties halted and threw forward their rifles, or drew their revolvers for instant use, gazing at each other the while in silent surprise at the suddenness of their meeting. "'Give in, you villains!' at last shouted a stern voice, "'or we'll blow you out of the saddle. You've no chance. Down your arms, I say!' "'Not until I know what right you have to command us,' replied Ned, somewhat nettled at the overbearing tone of his opponent." We are peaceable travelers desiring to hurt no one, but if we were not, surely so large a party need not be afraid. We don't intend to run away, still less do we intend to dispute your passage. 
The strangers lowered their firearms as if half ashamed at being surprised into a state of alarm by two men. "'Who said we were afraid, young man?' continued the first speaker, riding up with his comrades and eyeing the travelers narrowly. "'Where have you come from, and how comes it that your clothes are torn and your faces covered with blood?' The party of horsemen edged forward as he spoke in such a manner as to surround the two friends, but Ned, although he observed the movement, was unconcerned as, from the looks of the party, he felt certain they were good men and true. "'You are a close interrogator for a stranger,' he replied. "'Perhaps you will inform me where you have come from, and what is your errand in these lonesome places at this hour of the night?' "'I'll tell you what it is, stranger,' answered another of the party, a big, insolent sort of fellow. We are out after a band of scoundrels that have infested them parts for a long time, and it strikes me you know more about them than we do. Perhaps you are right, answered Ned. Mayhap they're not very far off from where we're standing, continued the man, laying his hand on Tom Collins' shoulder. Tom gave him a look that induced him to remove the hand. Right again, rejoined Ned with a smile. I know where the villains are, and I'll lead you to them in an hour if you choose to follow me. The men looked at each other in surprise. You'll not object to some of us riding before and some behind you, said the second speaker, just by way of preventing your horses from running away. They looks a little skeery. By no means, answered Ned. Lead on, but keep off the edge of the track till I call a halt. Why so, stranger? Never mind, but do as I bid you. The tone in which this was said effectually silenced the man, and during the ride no further questions were asked. About a quarter of an hour afterwards the moon rose, and they advanced at such a rapid pace that in a short time they were close upon the spot where the battle had taken place. Just before reaching it, Ned called a halt and directed the party to dismount and follow him on foot. Although a good deal surprised, they obeyed without question, for our hero possessed, in an eminent degree, the power of constituting himself a leader among those with whom he chanced to come into contact. Fastening his horse to a tree, Ned led the men forward a hundred yards. "'Are these the men you search for?' he inquired. "'They are, sir,' exclaimed one of the party in surprise, as he stooped to examine the features of the robbers who lay where they had been left. "'Hello!' exclaimed Tom Collins. "'I say!' "'The biggest fellow's gone. "'Didn't we lay him hereabouts?' "'Ah? Uh, "'Dear me, yes. "'Why, this is the very spot, I do believe.' "'All further remarks were checked at that moment "'by the sound of horses' hooves approaching, "'and almost before anyone could turn round, "'a horseman came thundering down the pass at full gallop. "'Uttering a savage laugh of derision, "'he discharged his pistol full into the center of the knot of men as he passed.' and in another moment was out of sight. Several of the onlookers had presence of mind enough to draw their pistols and fire at the retreating figure, but apparently without effect. "'It's him!' cried Tom Collins. "'And he's mounted on your horse, Ned!' "'After him, lads!' shouted Ned as he ran back towards the place where the horses were fastened. "'Whose is the best horse?' "'Hold on, stranger,' said one of the men as he ran up to Ned. "'You may save your wind.' "'None of the horses can overtake your one, I guess. "'I was looking at him as we came along. "'It would only be losing time for nothing, "'and he's miles ahead by this time.' "'Ned Sinton felt that the man's remarks were too true, 
so he returned to the spot where the remaining robbers lay and found that the miners had cut their fastenings and were busily engaged in rebinding their hands behind them, preparatory to carrying them back to their settlement. It was discovered that the lashings of one of the men had been partly severed with a knife, and, as he could not have done it himself, it was plain that the robber who had escaped must have done it, and that the opportune arrival of the party had prevented him from accomplishing his purpose. How the man had broken his own bonds was a mystery that could not now be solved, but it was conjectured that they must have been too weak, and that he had burst them by main strength. Another discovery was now made, namely, that one of the three robbers secured was no other than Black Jim himself. The darkness of the night had prevented Ned and Tom from making this discovery during the fight. In less time than we have taken to describe it, the robbers were secured, and each was mounted behind one of his captors. "'Ain't you going with us?' inquired one of the men, observing that Ned Sinton stood leaning on his rifle as if he meant to remain behind. "'No,' answered Ned. "'My companion and I have traveled far today, besides fighting a somewhat tough battle. We mean to camp here for the night, and shall proceed to your settlement tomorrow.' The men endeavored to dissuade them from their purpose, but they were both fatigued and persisted in their determination. The impression they had made, however, on their new friends was so favorable that one of their number, a Yankee, offered the loan of his horse to Ned, an offer which the latter accepted thankfully, promising to return it safe and sound early on the following day. Five minutes later the sound of the retreating hooves died away, and the travelers stood silently side by side in the gloomy ravine. For a few minutes neither spoke. Then Ned heaved a sigh, and looking in his companion's face with a serio-comically sad expression, said, "'It may not perhaps have occurred to you, Tom, but are you aware that we are a couple of beggars?' "'If you use the term in its slang sense and mean to insinuate that we are a couple of unfortunate beggars, I agree with you.' "'Well, I've no objection,' rejoined Ned, to your taking my words in that sense, but I mean to say that over and above that, we are real, veritable, bona fide beggars, inasmuch as we have not a sixpence in the world. Tom Collins's visage grew exceedingly long. Our united purse, pursued Ned, hung, as you are aware, at my saddle-bow, and yon unmitigated villain who appropriated my good steed is now in possession of all our hard-earned gold. Tom's countenance became preternaturally grave, but he did not venture to speak. Now, continued Ned, forcing a smile, there is nothing for it but to make for the nearest diggings, commence work again, and postpone our travels to a future and more convenient season. We may laugh at it as we please, my dear fellow, but there's no denying that we are in what the Yankees would call an uncommon fix. Ned's remark as to laughing at it was altogether uncalled for and inappropriate, for his own smile might have been more correctly termed a grin, and nothing was further from Tom Collins's thoughts at that moment than laughing. "'Are the vittles gone, too?' inquired Ned hastily. Both turned their eyes toward Tom Collins' horse, which grazed hard by, and both heaved a sigh of relief on observing that the saddlebags were safe. This was a small drop of comfort in their otherwise bitter cup, and they made the most of it.
each, as if by a common impulse, pretending that he cared very little about the matter, and assuming that the other stood in need of being cheered and comforted, went about the preparations for encamping with a degree of reckless joviality that insensibly raised their spirits, not only up to but considerably above the natural level, and when at last they had spread out their viands and lighted their fire in their pipes, they were, according to Tom's assertion, happy as kings. The choosing of a spot to encamp on formed the subject of an amicable dispute. "'I recommend the level turf under this oak,' said Ned, pointing to a huge old tree whose gnarled limbs covered a wide space of level sward. "'It's too low,' objected Tom. Tom could always object, a quality which, while it acted like an agreeable dash of cayenne thrown into the conversation of some of his friends, proved to be sparks applied to gunpowder in that of others. It's too low, and doubtless moist. I think that yonder pine, with its spreading branches and sweet-smelling cones, and carpet of moss below, is a much more fitting spot. Now, who is to decide the question if I don't give in, Tom? For I assume, of course, that you will never give in. At that moment an accident occurred which decided the question for them. It frequently happens that some of the huge, heavy branches of the oaks in America become so thoroughly dried and brittle by the intense heat of summer that they snap off without a moment's warning, often when there is not a breath of air sufficient to stir a leaf. This propensity is so well known to Californian travelers that they are somewhat careful in selecting their camping ground, yet, despite all their care, an occasional life is lost by the falling of such branches. An event of this kind occurred at the present time. The words had barely passed Ned's lips when a large limb of the oak beside which they stood snapped off with a loud report and fell with a crash to the ground. "'That settles it,' said Tom somewhat seriously as he led his horse towards the pine tree and proceeded to spread his blanket beneath its branches. In a few minutes the bright flame of their campfire threw a lurid glare on the trees and projecting cliffs of the wild pass, while they cooked and ate their frugal meal of jerked beef and biscuit. They conversed little during the repast or after it, for drowsiness began to steal over them, and it was not long before they laid their heads side by side on their saddles, and murmuring, Good night, forgot their troubles in the embrace of deep, refreshing slumber. End of chapter 16